Hello, this is my second episode where I take a great song and I ask, what makes it work? My first episode about Bob Dylan's The Times Era Changing can also be found on my YouTube or Spotify page. Just look for Big Yellow Praxis on YouTube or Underrated, Overhated, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, and you'll also find podcast episodes where I talk to people about underrated music as well as original music and jam videos on my YouTube page. So, this second episode is about the Dire Straits song, Brothers in Arms. And I'm going to start with a question. A question that actually frames both the song and the band pretty negatively. But I think even the biggest fans of the Dire Straits will find themselves agreeing with my general point. So, the question is... Are the Dire Straits the least cool band ever? Yes. Or at least, very probably. There are a few other contenders. The case against the Dire Straits tends to go a little like this. They are the absolute epitome of dad rock. They were just massively out of step with their contemporaries, in terms of both musical and sartorial style, as well as being older than usual for rock bands starting their careers. This all kind of conspired to make them uncool and behind the times in the late 70s, which is really saying something. Let this sink in. They were already considered antiquated for the now positively antediluvian year of 1978. Apologies to all my older listeners. I was born in 1990, so I could say that. They're a rock band that isn't really rock. Even their fast songs don't really feel energetic, and their slow songs are slow. Slow. Again, compared to many of their contemporaries, they're just massively out of step with the times. Mark Knopfler's singing style is, well, let's be honest, it's, it's just mumbling. It's often closer to the spoken word than it is to singing. And although the late 70s were quite forgiving towards less than stellar singers, Mark Knopfler's style is still a million miles away from the more obviously kind of emotive sneer that you hear in punk. The headbands. The headbands. More headbands. This music video. I mean, what on earth is this aberration? The fact that their biggest album, one of the biggest albums of the 80s and of all time in fact, combines possibly the two least suited genres, the two genres that are possibly the most out of sync with each other, country and synth pop with a liberal sprinkling of cheesy 80s drums and sax solos. Oh, and did I mention the headbands? And yet, I, like many others, love them. I think they're absolutely brilliant. They are boring. They are definitely square, but they are brilliant. In fact, and this is really central to the point of this episode, they are arguably the most brilliant, boring band of all time. They've turned subtlety into such a refined art, turned mid-tempo J.J. Kale-style rootsy pub rock mumbling into such an idiosyncratic and well-pitched style that their music sounds boring. Now, Maybe I could better phrase boring as understated or restrained, but the point stands. Their music, and of course, when I say they're here, it primarily refers to Mark Knopfler's songwriting, singing, guitar playing. No offence to the others who are all capable contributors. Their music manages to provoke some genuinely deep feelings of disgust from lots of people. Boring, uncool, lame, wet, overly technical. These seem to me to be some of the most common criticisms from my very cursory online research. Now. I'm not here to tell anyone that they're wrong or to persuade the haters. Hell, I don't even entirely disagree with many of those criticisms. Rather, I'm going to agree with them and then tell you why that makes them great. Now, how's that for a daring rhetorical strategy? So, I'm going to discuss how this song works by looking at how it approaches three things. Genre, 
because I love talking about genre. Space. No, not that kind of space. This kind of space. The space that the music inhabits and the space that we hear between notes or sounds. And lyrics. And the song's dullness, the band's uncoolness, or if we're nice about it, the restraint, is central to the song's success in each of these areas. Genre. This song is a... a rock song, I guess? But rock is very unhelpful, it's very vague as a generic label, given that it broadly applies to Deep Purple as much as it applies to Coldplay. So let's look at it again. I put it to you that this is actually a synth folk, maybe a synth country song? It's actually a hard one to pin down. But let's go through it bit by bit. What makes a genre? The instruments. We have electric guitar, complete with cool sounding guitar swells which are very violin-like. A very modern sounding tone and actually very heavy sounding at points, though delicately played. Drums, pretty straightforward rock drumming, pretty sparse and nicely reverbed. We have vocals, which I'll return to later. The key thing to note here is how mumbly they are, basically. We have synths and keys. Now, I'm not 100% sure what's going on with the keys, but there's clearly a few different synth sounds, and they do a lot of the heavy lifting in terms of creating the entire sound, from electric organ sounds to atmospheric sounds through to what sounds to me like some kind of pipe organ synthesizer accordion thing. All of these are variably panned across our field of listening. Some are right, some are left, some in the middle. I can't quite work out what all the sounds are, and I can't find a super detailed personnel list, but they certainly sound artificial rather than real. We have a bass guitar, which sounds like a bass guitar, there's not much to say here. So that's basically the instruments. But there's also chords. So the chords in this song are straightforward enough. They're pretty standard chords that are diatonic to the key of A flat minor. They don't really do anything fancy or out of the norm for any standard folksy tune. Structure. We have two verses, a short bridge, and then a final verse. But with a very long atmospheric intro and a similarly long outro, we'll come back to this later. Now, there is no chorus, but the last two lines of every verse repeat the song name with variations on the setup acting as the refrain. You'll no longer burn to be brothers in arms. You did not desert me, we're fools to make war. This is not super common in pop and rock songs, although it does sometimes happen. They more often tend to have a traditional verse-chorus structure, but it's definitely more common in folk music. Lyrics. Again, we'll get onto these later in a bit more detail, but for now it's enough to say that they strike me as very folksy, kind of semantically, and in terms of how they're sung. So I guess what I'm getting at here is that whereas the first song I talked about in this series, uh, The Times They Are Changing, was unified in sound and direction, this actually has contrary elements in its composition and use of generic tropes. We have 80s synths, we have modern guitar sounds, digital effects and recording, combined with country and folk songwriting idioms and structure, as well as a guitar vocabulary that owes more to Roy Buchanan and J.J. Cale than anything else. Just listen to those bends and the way he outlines the chords. These contrary elements emphasise or exacerbate the uncool factor. This isn't exactly a cool or trendy musical fusion. 
This is 80s synth pop and folksy country music. <laughs> in the popular imagination, that's a pretty vanilla or beige combination. Arguably the most, and in all honesty, the majority of the attempts by the dinosaur artists, we might call them, Eric Clapton and people like that, of previous decades to update their sounds did not end well. This updated sound for the 80s, though, did end better for the Dire Straits. And although I don't think it worked as well for the entire Brothers in Arms album as it would a few years later for Paul Simon's Graceland, it did end up as their most successful album, commercially speaking, by quite a long way. The reason that this unusual musical fusion works so well on this track is largely down to how well the song uses space. So, by space, I mean a few things. The space between notes and sounds, and the way that we hear the space that music is recorded in or for. Our song, Brothers in Arms, what does it do with space? Firstly, it quite simply leaves loads of empty space, rather than occupying it, at least immediately. This isn't a full spectre wall of sound. Or a Hendrixian wall of guitar. This is a Mark Knopfler sprinkling of sounds? I don't know, just bear with me. So we start with some synths and keyboards, some panned left, some right, with some atmospheric storm sounds. At least that's what I think they're meant to be. It's 30 seconds before we even hear a guitar note, and over a minute before Mark starts his signature mumbling. It's two minutes before we hear any percussion, at which point the bass guitar also comes in. This song really takes its time. None of the playing, whether the guitar, drums, keys or bass on this song, are virtuosic or flamboyant. It's absolutely minimalistic. We're back here to the Dire Straits' signature, unexciting or understated style. They're really taking their time in this song, and even when it is time to up the ante, they do it in increments, and then they bring it back down again, only to lift it up again. This is essentially the most gentle roller coaster ride ever. A lot of this really just boils down to dynamics. Bringing it down lets you reset the bass line, so that when you bring the song back up again, you can re-emphasize sections without having to blow your speakers looking for another level of loudness. This song builds tension and dynamics by going back to a quieter level, and then bringing it back up again, rather than simply going up and up again. This is a million miles away from the sort of infinite key changes you sometimes hear at the end of pop songs. Each instrument in a band occupies its own sonic space. Now the bass guitar obviously fills up the bottom, human voices tend to fill in the mids and the highs, and instruments like the guitar and piano are able to cover a wide range of frequencies quite easily. Different parts of the drum kit can of course cover different frequencies, and basically the more instruments that are present, the more space is filled in. At the start, Brothers in Arms fills a lot of the sonic space up with atmospheric noises and synths, and then we have a relatively empty sounding first verse, and then it fills in again for the second half of the song when everything kicks in. Drums, bass and everything else. It really plays with the dynamic space available to it in order to keep us interested throughout. Hearing the room. We are remarkably good as a species at hearing space. The size of a room can be heard in the varying types and levels of reverb. From a big room... To a small one. Even to the echo of a cave... Or a canyon. We can immediately, without conscious understanding, get how close or far away a sound source is. 
and the change from one word or another can easily elicit an emotional reaction all by itself. Can't it? A voice or a sound can come from one side or another, or move across the stereo field during the course of a word or sentence. My point here is that everything from audiobooks to radio plays, through folk music and classical, up to the most DIY punk or the most overblown progressive rock song, is made with these understandings in mind to at least some degree. A. That the vast majority of people hear in stereo, simply because we have two ears. And B. That we can intuitively build a mental picture of the space that we're in just from the sounds we hear. We may not be as good at this as Bats, or someone like Daniel Kish, a blind man who can draw rooms after clicking his way around them, which is unbelievably impressive. But we can still do it. You could try it in the room you're in now. Sit with your eyes closed and listen to the way that sounds bounce off the walls and come in from certain angles. Maybe you have an open window or even a closed one. Maybe even talk to yourself in an empty space and feel how much you can hear the shape of the room. It's uncanny. Basically, the two main ways that producers can create a feeling of space in music is by using reverb and using that stereo panning, putting some sounds to the left, others to the right, and some in the middle. Reverb. Reverb is the persistence of sound after the sound has been made. It's what happens when a sound bounces off of surfaces and is absorbed by other surfaces at different rates. Basically, it's lots of little echoes. It can be added artificially, which is very common in 80s style gated reverb. Or picked up naturally during the recording, like in Simon and Garfunkel's The Boxer. It can turn a dry sounding piece of music that doesn't sound like it really exists in any space into something much more alive and real. Compare these two drum tracks. Now, both put together with crappy cheap drum sounds, so neither sounds great, but the second sounds much better with just a little reverb because it sounds like it occupies a real space rather than just living in a computer and going straight into your brain. Basically, reverb is one of those things that you might not have noticed, but your brain did. Your brain automatically interprets it to build a sonic picture of the music you're hearing. This song, Brothers in Arms, lives in a weird space between folk and 80s synth music, and its use of panning and reverb contributes to that. Both are done artificially. The reverb we hear isn't the natural reverb of a room, but digital reverb, used to create the sense of space that we hear across the stereo field. The song, at its core, is a folk song, but the sophisticated and immaculate soundscapes and design is a million miles away, or, more properly put, a hundred years ahead. It's a very odd combination of elements, because the miscovered mountains, the valleys and the farms of the lyrics, are sort of there, implicit in the reverb and the panning, while still being completely artificial and being applied to modern contemporary sounding instruments. All of this is in the context of a quite traditionally composed folk song. We can hear open spaces, we hear a folk song but the sounds we hear aren't necessarily the sounds we expect to hear in those open spaces or in a folk song. Lyrics. So, I mentioned lyrics before. What is he actually saying? (laughs) Sorry, what? Okay, so it's quite hard to work out what he's actually singing at times. 
the lyrics are often virtually indecipherable unless you've got them written in front of you. I don't think this is a massive problem, personally. Lyrics as we hear them are more important as lyrics as written. If that weren't the case, then singers wouldn't bother singing, would they? So let's start with how they sound. So, let's be frank, this is not the best example of brilliant singing. It's more from the Bob Dylan school than the Freddie Mercury school of singing. And his enunciation is clearly purposely mumbly. Now, I'm not saying that the singing is bad or ineffective, just that it isn't technically impressive, and it isn't meant to be. To keep with the same comparison, I can't quite imagine Freddie Mercury singing this song. In spite of the fact that he's undeniably a better singer than Mark Knopfler technically, he would just sound wrong on this recording. So, to put it simply, Mark sounds like a broken man. His singing is weak, his voice cracking and faltering, the lyrics unclear. This is completely apt, given that this is a song about war and its aftermath. It's not valorizing war, it's not a cool or badass song about battle. Think more along the lines of Immigrant Song by Led Zeppelin. It's a song about the psychological fallout of war and the relationship of a soldier with his fellow soldiers. The lyrics, which tell a quite frankly vague, but all the more universally applicable for its vagueness story, about a soldier's life after war, these lyrics freely borrow imagery from the Bible and theology generally. Baptism of fire, for example, is from Matthew 3.11. He talks of hell. The vocabulary is straightforward, largely mono or duosyllabic, and not really particularly sophisticated. This all serves to keep the song lyrically grounded, almost conversational or colloquial rather than affected or too obviously composed, perfectly appropriate for a song sung from the first-person point of view of a soldier. Mark Knopfler is at his best, lyrically speaking, in this mode. It's not too different to Telegraph Road or Sultans of Swing. Keeping it simple and piecing together a vague narrative that hints at something bigger, whether that's the rise and fall of a frontier town, the struggles of an amateur musician, or in this case, post-war life. The most obviously artistic part of the lyrics is simply its rhyme, which isn't formally or consistently stuck to, sometimes simply being half rhyme rather than full. Through these fields of destruction Baptisms of fire I've witnessed your suffering As the battle reached high point is, though, that we hear rhyme, or near rhyme, and we register it as a thing. I think the best way to sum up what rhyme does in this song is by simply acknowledging the widely acceptable principle of it's true because it rhymes. Now, I don't quite know why we like the rhetorical effect of rhyming, but we clearly do. It's hardly novel or groundbreaking of me to point it out, but rhyme does seem to get our attention and increase the impact of a saying, phrase, or lyrics. It makes it more memorable as well as just making it feel natural. Hearing a rhyme seems to make us think these words, and by extension, the meaning of them, are natural and make sense. The lyrics are true because they rhyme. So, wrapping up. It's worth here going back to a set of points that I made in my first video, a set of points that I will probably continually come back to. Songs, and all art, are 1. Culturally situated. That is to say, more than just the technical details of music theory. The music theory bits are an element of culture not just some separate thing for music nerds. Two, it is only through this cultural situatedness, yes, that is now a word, that they make their impact. And three, we do a lot of the interpretation of this unconsciously or automatically. So, everything in a work of art, here, a song, serves to culturally situate it in its time period, in its genre, language, country, all that stuff. 
No song or work of art can actually transcend its context, whether it's a Mozart concerto, a painting by Gustav Klimt, or a three-chord two-minute song by a teenage punk band. In fact, transcending cultural situation would completely defeat the object. People listen to Mozart because he's Mozart. People like Gustav Klimt's art because he painted his art when he did. And people listen to Blink-182 because they're an American pop-punk band. Brothers in Arms is no different. What makes it interesting is that it resides in a sort of weird, unique, liminal cultural space, halfway between sounding modern and contemporary even now, thanks to its innovative and very clean recording, digital instrumentation and production, while also remained rooted in folksy songwriting, lyrics and storytelling formats. These elements mixed together create a truly unique track. It is both a very 80s song and something that could have been written decades earlier by a crusty old folk band with acoustic guitars and fiddle. This song similarly sits in a sort of unique, liminal space in terms of sound design, which is part of its odd cultural space. The reverb and the stereo panning of the instruments, the voice and the sound effects. You can almost hear those mist-covered mountains, the physical spaces evoked by the lyrics, the valleys and the farms, the fields. These are reflected partly in the way the record sounds, while also not. After all, this is quite obviously and unavoidably a digital studio recording. It may not reek of the 80s quite as much as some of the other songs in the album. But it's still clear as day in the synths, reverb drums and the modern sounding electric guitar. Ultimately, my final thought on this song is simply, how on earth was this song successful? Who was the target audience in 1985? I really, really like this song. But it's actually quite weird and idiosyncratic, without actually being weird enough to appeal to people on the basis of its weirdness. I'm glad it was successful, but slightly bewildered at times. Although maybe I shouldn't be too surprised that there are lots of people with tastes as good as mine. In conclusion, this is possibly the coolest uncool song I know by the most exciting, boring band on the planet. If, like me, you love this song, I would recommend giving a listen to Sailing to Philadelphia by Mark Knopfler from his solo album of the same name. It has a similar vibe, though without the 80s production, and it has some really nice historically rooted lyrics that, again, sort of tell a story, but also hint at bigger issues. He even repeats some of the exact same guitar licks. There's also Mike Oldfield's 80s stuff, most famously, though arguably least interestingly, Moonlight Shadow. These songs do similar things, but from a more obviously traditional British folk starting point, and I would recommend listening to songs like Five Miles Out, Shadow on the Wall, and Trick of the Light, not least for their amazing guitar playing. And finally, if you like this episode, please like and subscribe. This is only the second one of these that I've made, and they do take a while to put together. If you enjoy my content, please go on and share it with other people who you think might also enjoy it. If you like, you could even give me some suggestions of what you'd like me to tackle next. I'm happy to do pretty much any song, as long as I actually like it myself. 